So last week, Pastor Lori began a conversation about engaging purpose, and she did amazing. And, but particularly understanding the difference between our primary and our secondary calling. And she noted that purpose is contested space. And so it, to engage the conversation of purpose, we started with you, just you. Now we're going to begin to add some layers to it. And here's what I want you to know. Wherever God is genuinely at work, there's always a counterfeit option. Wherever God is genuinely at work, you will be presented with a counterfeit option. It will cost you less. It will be cheaper, in a sense. The satisfaction will be immediate, or the gratisfaction will be immediate. It is always, however, inferior to what God is doing. But when you look at it with our eyes, man, is it ever tempting. In the body of Christ, our strength, as Kofi has been articulating, is our togetherness. We need one another. But how many of you know that our togetherness is also our Achilles heel? In community, we are absolutely blessed, and we are equally, at times, wounded. This happens at church with one another. By a show of hands, please, has anybody ever heard a Christian say something that made you cringe? Can I see your hands, please? What do you want to do? You want to bay, bay, beep, beep, beep. You want to back away. You want to get away from there as quickly as you can. It's the wrong motive. It's the wrong way to move. Anybody here as a Christian ever say anything dumb? Don't you wish sometimes you could back away from yourself? <laughs> I do every Sunday. <laughs> well, I want to add a few layers as we begin to dig in today to three really important things. I want to add a few layers to this being contested space. I want to teach more today than I want to preach. I want to talk about theological, cultural, and then spiritual, and then really dive in. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus talked about a house and a strong man. If you own a home, if you own a social media account, you can be hacked. If you own a home, it can be robbed. If you own a vehicle, it's your car, but it can be robbed. In a sense, in Mark chapter 3, this is what Jesus says. See, a lot of Christians believe that the moment I give my life to Christ, that everything in my life now is exclusively with Christ. And yeah, just like you can own a home, absolutely you can own a home, but if a thief has access to your home, you still own the home, but the thief that has access to your home can do damage while he is in the home. The same thing with a social media account. It can be your account, but if someone has illegal or they've hacked into it, they can create incredible damage to your identity. Even though you never changed who you are, their access to that point is significant. And so in Mark chapter 3, Jesus basically talks about a house, and he talks about a strong man, that while the strong man is present, it's not as though he has ownership of the house, but the strong man, while he is present, can and wreak havoc in that house, and Jesus says that that strong man has to be bound by a higher authority, and then when bound and removed, it's again, it's not as though the home ownership changes, the threat or the damage can change. One of the greatest deceptions is that as a follower of Christ, the enemy cannot be active in my life at all. That is not what Jesus taught remotely. No, your whole life belongs to the Lord, but there can be areas that the enemy has legal access into in our hearts and lives. We have a team going up to Cornwall to minister uh, freedom today, and we pray that strong men, strong men are bound and removed, and then, then those places are freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. 
This is what we pray. So in one sense, there is this cultural or this theological understanding within the body of Christ that not everything in the church, just because it is God's church, is of God. That the enemy is active, so it's contested space. Wherever there is the genuine, you find the counterfeit. But there's also a cultural shift that you and I are living through that if I were to take you back to the 1970s or 50s or 60s, I couldn't take you back to the 50s. I wasn't born. But I could take you back to the 70s. There used to be a time where people saw church and morality as intertwined together. And so if they wanted, you know, their, their wayward son or their wayward daughter, they'd, they'd want to connect them to church because it's like, hey, there's, those are moral people. We live in a world today, and in some instances it's because of some of the foolish things that we have done as followers of Christ. In other instances it's because the media in which we live only highlights the negative things, or mostly highlights the negative things. But the truth is that when you talk of the world today, they no longer see church and morality as interwoven, they see church and power as interwoven. And this presents a very unique challenge of togetherness or us. And the last is spiritual. Suppose that the enemy cannot create confusion in having you reverse your primary and secondary calling. Suppose you keep those things straight, as Pastor Lori talked about last week. You keep them clean. You keep them aligned. Your primary calling is to follow Jesus. Your secondary calling is to figure out what gifts, life experiences, and acquired skills and resources that God has given you, and you use them for God's glory. Suppose you keep those in right order, and you keep them where they need to be. The next place of attack that the enemy will go to is seeking to uproot you from healthy relationships you need in this current season season or the upcoming season of your life. If the enemy cannot cause your purpose inside to get reversed, the next place he will attack is to uproot you from the relationships you need. And here's the challenge. The enemy is not all-knowing, but he has seen this happen time and time and time again. God is all-knowing, and so he will work in advance, placing people in your path on purpose, for a purpose, for you to get to know them or engage with them, one with another, and the enemy is not all-knowing, but he has seen this before, and so one of the ways that he works over time, if he cannot work in us, he works between us. He will work to uproot you from the healthy relationships that you need to walk in the purpose that God has for you. A way that God, again, so a way that God works, as I just mentioned, is to place other people, everyone say other people, even them in your lives for a greater purpose. So to engage purpose, yeah, we need to know God and we need to know ourselves, but we also need to recognize who am I surrounded with? Who is in my life? Who has God placed in my sphere of influence? So we need to know Jesus, we need to know ourselves, we need to know others, and we also need to know our spiritual opponent. Abraham and Sarah, Joshua and Caleb, Joseph and Mary. You begin to see people connected together for a wider purpose. You also see negative preparation. Everyone say negative preparation. Now God does not create these things, but because he is good, he can redeem all things. And so you see in the Old Testament, Esther and Haman, Saul and David, Jacob and Esau. God does not create these circumstances, but he can use these circumstances to refine us for a grander glory. 
How many of you know that wherever the enemy is active, God can take whatever the enemy does and not only heal it, but redeem it? In other words, take what was meant for destruction and turn it into something good. Your spiritual enemy can only do one thing, lie, deceive you. It is nothing redemptive in him whatsoever. And so there are different spiritual gifts, but it's the same Holy Spirit at work. As Kofi Gann read a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Different spiritual gifts, same Holy Spirit at work. Different ways to serve, same Lord moving among us. Different activities, the same God who creates all things. Different and same, different and same, different and same is the language of togetherness. It's the language of our interdependence. And so what is the enemy's language? Because it is everywhere, including in the church, and yes, in our own mouths. Different and same is the language of heaven. Different and better than is the language of hell. It is the language of darkness. It is the dimming presence of darkness that is everywhere that seeps and seeks to instill in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes when we look at one another that not only am I different from you, but even if it is just this much in our lives that I am better than you. This is dangerous. Because whom we see or believe that we are better than, here's what happens next. If I believe that I am better than you, then I can give to you, but I cannot receive from you. I don't need you because I'm better than you. We are blinded to the fact that every single gift and every single one, we need each other. Turn the person beside you, look him right in the eyes and say, I need you. I don't even know you. <laughs> if you feel so bold, I need you to pay my mortgage in Jesus' name. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't do that. That's how people leave the church real quick, right? Like, well, God told me that you're going to pay my mortgage. God never told me that. <laughs> now we have conflicts. So in the scriptures... Our interdependence is crystal clear. To live dependent on God and in healthy relationships with others is what we need to uncomfortably embrace. Now, the following passage is often cited at weddings, but it wasn't originally intended to be read at weddings. Um, it was written to a church that was struggling with everything that we've just read today. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is what we have read as a church. 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the wedding chapter. It was not written for weddings, though it's beautifully applicable. It wasn't written in that context. It wasn't actually written from a romantic sense. It was written to a church that was struggling to love one another. Can we relate? It was written to a church in Corinth that had all these different gifts given to individuals who lacked maturity and valued certain ones and devalued others, that were learning the ways of culture that are not the ways of heaven, that didn't see themselves as the same but different, saw themselves as the same but better than, and God was at work in the midst of his church cleaning that up. And here's what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This, by the way, is not just love for God. It is love for one another. In fact, Jesus said in Mark 12, 30, 
3.31, the greatest of all the commandments is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the outflow of that is you will love your neighbor as yourself. Notice how it goes right away to one another. Well, I don't have to be, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, if you gave your life to Jesus and got smacked by a bus, great theology. But if you didn't get smacked by a bus, the moment you gave your life to Jesus, how do you fulfill the greatest commandments if you you distance yourself and disassociate yourself from community? How do you fulfill the greatest things that Jesus said on your own? And the fact even in North America that we can do faith on our own is a function of blessing that can actually become a curse. The fact that you can live your life and I don't need anyone could be the blessing and the prosperity of a culture that can even allow us to live that way, but it could, in one sense, it's blessing. In another sense, it makes us anemic and sick. If I have prophetic powers and I can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith is to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And love is patient and kind. Anybody here need to grow in patience and kindness? My gosh, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. I'm irritable. <laughs> like yesterday, I walked into the kitchen. I have, I, have a, I have a sensitivity to how people eat. Some of you, when you eat, shut your mouth. Close your mouth. <laughs> You know that noise? How many of you have it with me? You can hear it? Yeah. And you're like, I am so easily irritated. I walked into the kitchen yesterday and I was like, who's eating right now? But because I live with like young adults and teenagers, they all had earbuds in. They didn't hear me, so nothing happened. So it all was all good. That's not a joke. That's just reality. I just walked back out and I was like, well, the Lord saved me there. I mean, I was just caught. I was irritated or resentful. Anybody here ever, are you resentful of anything? Does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Mm but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is written to the context of a church that was failing to love one another well, of which is the same is true today. And so same and different are never going away. And here's what I want you to hear. Diversity is not a cultural value. It is a kingdom thing. It is included as a cultural value, yes. But diversity is ultimately God's design. Same, but different. Same, but different. This is God's design. Genesis, you have Adam created, and he says it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates Eve. Same, but different. They have full access to the presence of God in the garden. Now fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation. Because everything in the, in, the, in the Genesis, the original account, we'd say, man, shouldn't that also be in heaven, full access to God's presence? And it's like, yes, 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 a thousand times, yes. But in the garden, you have same and you have different. You have humanity, you have Adam and Eve, you have human and you have life. 
And then all the way you get to the book of Revelations and you know what you see in Revelations. You see actually God's idea was same different but not just between genders but also between ethnicities. Because when you get to the book of Revelations you don't see a garden, you see a city. And in the city is every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue that you and I, when we are present with the Father, when we are in the fullness of God's presence, it's not as though we go back to a Genesis state nor is it that we go back to this floating angels, we are all one, same. we are all one. No, 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 there is the same and there is this difference, but it's glorified in God's presence. So the very ache of our culture, when you hear it cried for diversity, the very ache in our culture is an ache for heaven. It is an ache for the presence of God, but it cannot be under anything else other than the presence of God. Now, God, yes, brings laws, and there are policies, and they can help point us towards, and those are good things. But they can't transform the heart. Only God can. When I was a child, that's okay, so if part of our purpose is to see on earth then as it is in heaven, then we must ask what work is required for all of us to follow Jesus, and which includes being in healthy relationships with others. If otherness, indifference, but same is the song of heaven and we want to see on earth as it is in heaven, what are some things that we need to do? I'm going to read a couple of scriptures in succession. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11 says this, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, when I became a woman, here's what it says, I gave up what? Childish ways. By the way, what's childish? Take everything in 1 Corinthians 13 that says that love is and remove it and you have childishness. That's what it is. <laughs> when I walked in as a 50-year-old man to my kitchen yesterday, who's eating so loud? Childish. Grow up. Okay? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Find some around you, put a smile on your face, and say it with the most loving affection you can. Give them a word of encouragement. Just say, grow up. <laughs> Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Ephesians 5, therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are Light in the Lord. Walk as, walk as, that's doing stuff, children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And this is what it says. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Pause. You live really close to your life, yes? You live in your own head, your own emotions, yes? Sometimes you can't discern what is right in your own life because you live too close to it. That you need the gift of othering. You need the gift of someone else to come alongside and go, really? You think that? Now they won't say it that way because they're Canadian, but that's really what they're saying. <laughs> Run that by me again. You said and did what? Hmm? Hmm? You think that? You wanna do what now? To who? In the name of the, in the whose name? In the name of the, the Lord? The Lord told you, hmm? The, God told me to come to this church. And then you hear something you disagree with and three weeks later, the Lord has told me to leave. <laughs> what? Which one? Because one of them's God 
And it could be either or. I don't know. I'm just saying one of them is you. <laughs> Sometimes when we are uncomfortable to be say, like, I just can't worship here anymore because I'm in such disagreement. We, we can't say that because we, we were afraid we're going to offend people. So we use spiritual language and we blame God so that we don't actually offend people. But in the end, now we offend people. When I was a youth pastor, I had one rule with teens that would begin to date. If I ever hear you say these words to someone who you want to marry, God told me that we are going to get married. I will, in Jesus' name, slap you up one side of your head, <laughs> and Lori will be there to slap you up the other side of your head. Why? Dates, mates, births, and deaths. That's God's domain. Now if that person wants to break up with you, now they have to break up first with God, then they have to break up with you. Do not spiritually manipulate. If God said it, shut your mouth. I said shut your mouth twice today, by the way. Wow, keep, I'm, keep, I'm irritable. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth. Zip town bush. If God told you, then it's the confidence that you need. You don't have to say it. If God told you, then rest in it. They don't need to know it. They don't need to have that on top of their lives. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm not going to clap that because I actually said that to the person that I'm with right now. I know, I know, and it may have worked, but there are people here who have been wounded by that stuff. Just because you're uncomfortable with it, don't add God told me. Just sometimes just say like, hey, I just don't like that we do this. I don't like the way you said that, but now we have to work it out. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Lastly, give no opportunity to the devil. So to engage purpose, we have to know Jesus ourselves, others, and we have to know our opponent. And so interdependence is, is, is attainable if you and I will commit to the hard work of growing up. To the hard work of growing up. And there is nowhere that is shown more is than we are surrounded by people that we disagree with, that we have different gifts with. When we are indifferent, what do we need to remind ourselves? That they are loved by God just like I am loved by God. That they may be spiritually gifted by God just like I'm spiritually gifted by God. Right? Their life experiences may be different, but it is the same God at work in their life experiences as in mine. They may be different in every single way, but they are created in the image and likeness of God just like me. A shared commitment to growing up is what made, by the way, dot, dot, dot. A shared commitment to growing up is what made the early church revolutionary. Because there was no conceivable reason why they would be a community. Yet God's presence in their midst made them a community. And to the culture around them, it baffled them. How in the world is this group of people in relationship with one another? Like, did you know in this church there are Toronto Maple Leaf fans? <laughs> Just zip it. <laughs> Irritable. There are Toronto Maple Leafs fans and there are Montreal Canadian fans. <laughs> and you worship in the, the same church. You do not cheer the same team. In fact, if I brought you to another place, you'd be bitter enemies. And you should, because this is right in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> but you walk into here, and how many of you know 
that our allegiance to secondary things always bow to our shared allegiance to the most important thing. Or as we sang, you are worthy of it all. Did you, did you know there are people in here that vote liberal? Oh, be careful now. Did you know there are actual people who vote conservative? And there are people in here who don't vote at all. Slackards. But when we walk into this place, we are not liberal, new Democrat, or conservative. All of that bows to the allegiance of him. He is worthy of it all. <laughs> we can clap that, but how many, you know, that's hard stuff. <laughs> so to grow up, what specific things did the early church do and what do we need to do? Okay. I love a theologian named Dr. Glenn Packiam, and he lists a few, and I'm going to borrow some of his language, so credit where credit is due. The first is this. Where do we have to grow up? If we're going to grow up, we've got to deal with our pride. What is pride? It is an unhealthy view of self and then of others. Pride can look like one being braggadocious, arrogant, or cocky. But you know what pride can also look like? And this is very popular in 2023. Oh, it can also, pride can also be possessing a victimhood spirit, having no self-esteem, or being dismissive, constantly saying, God cannot use me. This too is pride. Why? Because it is not a focus on who is at work in you. It is a focus on who you see you as. And again, to grow in purpose, you need to know yourself. You need to first know Jesus, yourself, others, and your opponent. And your opponent will always work to cause you to diminish where God desires to use you. I'm not saying you might not need a season of healing. I am simply saying, if your season of healing has been five and seven and 10 years long, it's not a season, it's now a lifestyle and you need to repent of it because you are robbing the body of Christ of the gift that God has given you and you need to give it. The number one thing that should not be in church that is, is something called the Pareto Principle, which is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. In the body of Christ, it is to be 100% of the people do 100% of the work in every which way. This is how God has designed it. And wherever it is not this, the enemy is at work. It is contested space. It's not hypothetical, it's real. So pride is something that we all have to deal with. James 4, verse 6 is one of my favorite scriptures. He says he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How many of you here want God to give you grace? The one thing I do not want in life is for God to oppose what I'm doing. Yet sometimes God loves me so much, he opposes. And why does God oppose? Opposition from God is meant to slow you down to a place of confession and repentance so that you do not continue without God what you need to actually do in Christ. This is how God opposes. It's not that he's against you. He just provides weight and opposition to slow you down so that you would recognize your need of him. It's not that he doesn't love you. Everything God does is from love. 
Second one, though, is prejudice. Pride is an unhealthy view of, of ourselves and others, and prejudice is an unholy view of those different from you. I'm going to say it again. It's not just an ism. Whatever ism this is, prejudice is sin. It is unholy. It is the antithesis of who God is. And it doesn't matter if it's in comment or in a system. Both are real and they exist. Prejudice is an unholy view of those different from you. The most common manifestation of self-righteousness is elevating oneself by putting another down. And any form of superiority is self-righteousness. It's prejudice. It is not sin then. It is sin every day of the week. On Good Friday, we read this text. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If you have become taller by putting somebody else down and then stepping upon them, you have not actually reached new heights in God. You may in culture, and you may be promoted in that way. But it's not the promotion we want. The promotion that we want is not through pride or prejudice. There's a film, by the way, by those names. The antidote to prejudice is humility, which looks like us humbling ourselves. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the last one, which I wish I had more time on, but I don't, is the false teaching of uninhibited freedom. Pride, prejudice, and the false teaching of uninhibited freedom, which is an ungodly view of freedom. Through a gift of unmerited, un, unearned merit, the gospel changes who we are. As a gift of ongoing grace, we change what we allow the Holy Spirit to do in us. Here's what it says. Galatians 5. But I say walk by the Spirit. Everyone whisper walk. Like that's like what you're doing. It's not hard to walk. It's hard to jog, by the way, if you've never done it before. But isn't it remarkable? Like you can walk for an hour and you can't even jog for 30. Well, I can't jog for 30 seconds. You're like, speak for yourself. I can do marathons. Good for you. <laughs> But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are, oh, here we go, they're against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. That's contested space, by the way. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Those who belong to Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh, is disordered. the flesh is disordered passions and desires. The flesh is the counterfeit to God's genuine at work. Surrounding sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and if that didn't cover it all, just things like these. All these have one thing in common. Again, they are counterfeit to God's genuine working. Each goes beyond God's loving boundary by removing godly fences of love. 
by painting them as fences holding you back from freedom. Now watch. Pride, prejudice, and the false teaching of uninhibited freedom, here's what happens. They first do their unhealthy and unholy and ungodly work in us, and then, and then they show up between us. And where is God at work? He's at work in us, and he's at work between us. Let's all stand. To be more like Jesus, his church needs to be equal parts spiritually gifted, yeah? But we also have to be spiritually growing. And so here's, I want you to put your hands out. I want you to embrace this posture. Allow me to lead you in prayer, even though you have no idea what I'm about to have you say. This is trust. Together, let's pray these words. Say, dear Jesus. May this church fully include me and simultaneously never be all about me. May it be about you and your work in me and your work in us. Amen.